Hi, I'm Bob Witte with KPND in Sandpoint, Idaho. If I can be a fan of Skylight Books, LA's world-famous independent bookstore, from way up here in the Idaho Panhandle, then you can too from wherever you are. Visit the website, buy some books. You can even join their membership club and reap the benefits of supporting independent booksellers. Thanks. softer side meet me on the softer side softer side of your heart hi there and welcome to the skylight books author reading series you can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online you can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Um, we're always happy to have Penn Center here at Skylight Bookstore. We're always happy to have Penn Center here. Oh my goodness, people. <laughs> Michelle, we got to train these people. It was like whenever we hear Penn, we got to just say, Okay, love that place. Uh, they're an important uh, literary uh, landmark here in Los Angeles. They've contributed to the development of many writers, um, and they'll continue to do more. Uh, we're happy to have them here, and we'd like to welcome Michelle Myring. everyone. I think this is the biggest crowd that we have ever had at Skylight Books for a rattling wall reading. So let's begin our warm-up of claps with more clapping. Thanks to Noelle for the great introduction. For those of you I don't know, my name is Michelle Myring, and I'm the editor of The Rattling Wall and the director of programs and events at Penn Center USA. During the readings, this will be my first of many notes, during the readings at Skylight, the store records a podcast which is later posted to their website. And so I need all of you to sound actually like this is the greatest hour of your lives. See, I, I feel like you guys are warming up quick. This is good. Yeah, let's go again. I'm so excited to be here tonight. This is always a favorite bookstop tour for us. Uh, this is celebrating the new issue of The Rattling Wall, issue three. This is the journal that I founded in 2010, so it always warms my heart to see this many people show up in support of it. The book features short, I see, Jonathan's up here and he's like ready to go, clap time, any moment. The, the journal itself features short fiction, travel essays, and poetry. We're published twice each year by Narrow Books and funded by Penn Center USA. Penn, if you're not familiar with the organization, is a literary membership organization based in Los Angeles, but operating across the Western United States. Our mission is to stimulate and maintain interest in the written word to defend freedom of expression both domestically and internationally, and to foster a vital literary culture. 
So fostering a literary culture is what inspired Penn's support of the Rattling Wall, a project that has helped extend Penn's membership base. In the two years since the Rattling Wall's founding, we've published 100 writers and produced 50 packed events. In this little time, a little community has formed around the Rattling Wall, and tonight, again with this crowd, our community extends again. So thank you for joining us. Tonight, let's go again. Let's go. Now there's no stopping you. It was mentioned, and now you can't be stopped. So the Rattling Wall issue three was launched in November inside the Masonic Lodge at Hollywood Forever to a sold-out crowd of 300 people who paid actual money, dollars, to come and see a selection of six readers from the book uh, take the stage. The new book includes new work by Trini Dalton, Jim Crusoe, Jillian Lauren, who's here tonight, Joseph Matson, Emily Rapp, David Ewan, and all of the writers who are reading at Skylight. It also includes, which I am never cease to be quite proud of, an excerpt from the forthcoming novella Daddy Love by Joyce Carol Oates. Another cool note about the Rattling Wall is that each issue that we publish is fully illustrated by a single artist. So the Rattling Wall issue three was completely illustrated by Ben Teagle, whose work has a real narrative quality which provides the book with a visual cohesiveness that I think that uh, our readers have really responded to. So Ben supported our writing project in this way, and to support Ben on February 23rd, we're going to kick off a month-long art show at Synchronicity Gallery off of Melrose, which is called Ben Teagle, The Art of the Rattling Wall. Pieces from the book, as well as Ben's new work, will be featured in the show, and at the opening night reception, writers from the Rattling Wall issue three are going to write and present new flash fiction inspired by Ben's cover. So no one saw the cover until the book was released. And so when then I go and ask people to go and sort of do this process in reverse, which is fun. And Scoops, the ice cream gelato mecca across the street, um, allows the artist to pick a flavor, a rattling wall flavor, for the time that the show is up. So we, we posed this to Ben the other night, and he immediately said, my tie. Mai Tai. It was like it was a it was a repeated thing, so we're on for Mai Tai. Okay. That's actually the end of it for my introduction. I've, I, I don't have much to pull up here tonight. I just have to introduce all of these wonderful people to you. Okay, so one last time, are we ready to clap our asses off for the first reader? Yeah. Rachel Reynolds is a student of creative writing and classics at the University of Redlands Johnston Center for Integrative Studies. She has been the recipient of two first place prizes and a second place prize in the university's Jean Burden Prize for Poetry contest. Please welcome Rachel Reynolds. The first poem I'm going to read is uh, the poem that I have in The Rattling Wall, Issue 3, and it's called The Nude, um, and it has a quote by Gregory Orr um, some, from some part of the lyric. The quote is, is a nude more naked than the eye can see? The Nude. South Austin, 
Someone is tossing bats like confetti from the side of the Congress Avenue bridge. Fistfuls of bats like wedding rice. From where I stand at the water's edge, they look to be falling, flung as it were from above. The bridge, like a godhead, rises high above the water and the bats come sailing, pour forth like Tarkovsky's birds, straight from the breast of an Italian Madonna. As if to say, you've seen so little, this is only the beginning of beauty, of strangeness. Still, I start at the sight of them, go all stone dough, bewildered and boneless, dumb with bliss. It was like this, the first time that I saw him naked, the small of his back divvied, the difference then between eros and adoration. How slight on his frame it fell away when he turned in first light to meet me. The light in the room was purple, I remember, at once ripe and sullen as if bruised. The bridge rose heavy on its legs above the water and the bats came hurtling down. Their wings whistled. In the dark, I could not distinguish between bodies and their immaculate histories, shadows and the shapes from which, years ago, they had been cast. This one is a three-part poem called Towards a Theory, um, and the first part is titled Medea on Love and Loyalty on the Evening of One's Affair, and it too has a quote, objection is above all ambiguity, Julia Kristeva. Himeros, Sappho called it, a kind of lusting after love, a kind of thrilled tear like the insides of a tiger, graft of a deer. What happened next was this, I saw and I loved him, I who had a lover, I who had loved wholly, heart-yoked, indelibly, who wore on that day the dress that he gave me, cerulean, with tulips, and he a good husband, unknowing, a good man, to kiss the insides of my thighs in bed, to lift and to kiss my toes. Fuck. Because we had fucked, and I a virgin then, because there had been blood, it had been done, now my body belied my mind. Now a massive and sudden emergence of uncanniness, my borders all sullied and blurred. Because I'd held him warm in my mouth, loved him selfishly. Woman of no country, he'd call me, and rightly, woman of no shame. And I would be, as I always had been, my father's daughter, virgin whore and crone. Hateful to my mother and my sisters, to my daughters as yet unborn. Sets the teeth on edge, love does, the hands to hideous shaking, no recourse but to shoulder it. I have known nothing of love till now. Uh, I'm going to have to give a little background for this poem. The poem is called Sampika. Sampika is a church set high up on a hill in Rhodos, Greece. Um, and it's said that if a woman is having trouble um, having children, she can climb to the top of the hill. It's a really long climb. And say a prayer to the saint there, and she'll be able to have children after that. Um, and the tradition is that the baby should be named Sampika after the church, uh, boy or girl. Sampika. Birthplace of the twinkle in his father's eyes, sons, and glory be daughters who lived. Of our mothers and our mothers' mothers, whose bodies pregnant with desire mocked their childlessness for years. Whose losses mounted one upon another like bored lovers until they ceased to differ, till they became as one big loss, and our mothers they purposed to forget us. Stopped naming us, each small death bleeding into the next. Our fathers, having suffered into patience, now sought comfort in the constancy of despair.
held their wives only limply at night, their pleasure lessened for fear, and in anticipation of disappointment, grew impotent aged. Because they'd stopped looking heavenward, the problem of an evil god unsolved, they didn't notice when Sampika lit up like a firework, bold supernova in the night. A church was built to house the flame, a saint installed, then pilgrims, then supplicants came calling, came standing on their knees. Seeing this, our mothers set their sights on high Sampika, birthplace of celebrity babies and the women who bore them, whose wombs never tired, whose cords never tied, whose glosses our mothers in preparation for the ascent pressed with beads of sweat to their breasts. In their arms cradled candles the size and shape of life, but as yet uncolored, the child only lately conceived of, it was like flying from rooftops, the countenance like the simulacra of a dream. Three hundred and six steps to Sampika, the people on the way down looked like angels descending, the women's breasts swaying heavy as a heifer's with new milk, the men's heads idyllic, erect. Meanwhile, we and our potential souls shone wetly. We would be named Sampika, called softly by our mothers for whom the name was sandstone, ocean, boughs shivering on the shore for joy. Yet still softer by our lovers whose torsos we thought shone with like light, whose naked bodies in our beds, whose arms and legs and perfect electric sex we treasured, every atom with its ontology, every cell with its secret history. Thank you. And the last poem I'm going to read is called The Beach, and it's after the Iranian film The White Meadows. They chose the most beautiful from among them, and she had startled green eyes beneath the veil. In the dark of the tent, her father lifted it and kissed her fevered brow. Her lips were wet and trembled. They came for her then, four men, bore her away on a leader draped with the fine white linen the women had for weeks been spinning. She gripped the sides of it and cried out for her mother, who stood before the tent with her husband. The tent was dark inside, no children in it. The people shouted as they ran after her. The leader bobbed and swayed like a cradle, and she swayed upon it. The torches bobbed in the dark like flowers blooming. The sea was a field. Smoke from the fires hung in shrouds above it, thick and dark as down. The sea was a field of crushed petals. The smoke was in plumes. It was her wedding day, and the virgin's eyes were wild beneath the veil, her mouth wide with wailing. It split at the sides from salt, cracked, and bled. A sound like silk ripping. The air was rent with it, the birds startled from the branches of the trees. The people searched the sky, held out their hands for rain. From the shore, I watched the film play over the ocean, projected as from a great distance. Beside me on the sand, the body of my sister lover lay, her eyes the color of green rain. It could have ended then, had I no memory past it, but farther out, the girl's father retreated to his tent. Clouds gathered. The bride of the sea held tight to the leader on which she was born, shrieking terribly into the deep. Thank you. When I founded this book, it was really important to me that it included the work of new writers. And every time that I hear Rachel's work, every time that I read new poems of hers, it is incredibly hard for me to believe that this is a writer at the start of her career. So thank you again, Rachel, for reading. It's really fabulous poetry.
our next reader tonight is Benj Hewitt. Benj is a Los Angeles-based writer and winner of the 2012 John Steinbeck Short Story Award. His first book, When I Come Around, is a coming-of-age novel set in the Bay Area during the glory days of grunge and the dawn of the dot-com era. He has been long-listed for Ireland's Fish Publishing Short Memoir Contest and was a finalist for the 2012 Summer Literary Series Contest in Poetry. His essays on politics and parenting have appeared in Huffington Post and on Modern Mom. Please welcome Ben Hewitt. Thank you, Michelle, and thank you, Skylight Books. This is uh, a great honor, and it's nice to see so many familiar faces. Uh, this is an excerpt from the story I have in uh, The Rattling Wall. A big boy. Christopher wished Greta had known him the night he'd arced off the Manhattan Bridge, a swan dive over the East River, the bungee cord around his ankles, arresting his fall seconds before he splashed into the murky cold. Standing on the north side of the bridge at three in the morning, Christopher had been terrified. But it was the kind of terror he'd come to recognize from endless rehearsals in the dance studio, the kind of terror he'd come to love. And so he dove, up and out, and inevitably down for a few seconds of exhilarating flight alongside the Manhattan skyline. With the fog hugging the Berkeley flatlands, Christopher could smell only the stench of low tide, the receding water, the mud, and whatever it was that gave the bay its peculiar gray-green pallor. It had been easy to idealize California living when he was freezing through another long winter in New York, but what Christopher forgot was how dismally damp the Bay Area was much of the year. But never mind, because here he was, padding quietly down the stairs in his slippers, the early morning cold seeping around his ankles. It was Sunday, his former surf day. Christopher hadn't gone surfing in almost two years, but he could imagine the curve of the beach in Pacifica, the beautiful right break one could ride almost all the way to the rocky cliffs before jumping off. But not today. The second bedroom needed painting. Would he ever have another Sunday to surf again? He knew he should prepare Greta's tea, just in case she woke up. She was only six months along, but already she was unsteady on the stairs. A big boy. That was what the doctor had said they could expect. To Christopher's ears, this phrase sounded too infantile coming out of a doctor's mouth, distasteful in some unidentifiable way. He had felt like punching the smiling doctor, but Greta had been smiling too, and he knew he should have been as well. A big boy. He still hadn't opened any of the books Greta had given him, the expectant father, the ideal birth partner. What was there to know other than that Greta was going to give birth to their son? She would push and she would scream at him and she'd push some more and that'd be it. Or she'd have a C-section, that'd be it. Um, he'd be a father. Whenever anyone asked him if he was ready, he'd always answer, of course. Because what else could he say? There was no way could he say that not only was he, he wasn't ready, he wasn't even sure he wanted to be with Greta. That the week she told him the news, he'd been working up the, the courage to bring up whether or not they should stay together. Not that he'd decided one way or the other, but he thought it at least worth a discussion. Christopher decided the problem was that Greta didn't know the before Christopher, the one who had been a professional dancer, who used to ride high with his best friend Jason through the empty streets of the East Village on his three-speed after a long night out, who had once walked into a movie theater backwards while a huge crowd exited because he was too broke to buy a ticket. The one who used to hoist his board onto the A-train at dawn to go surfing in the rockways. The problem was Greta only knew Christopher the law student, the sedentary, the settled. Life in an office was dull. Life in Berkeley was dull. Worst of all, life with Greta was dull. 
When had life become dull? And more to the point, how would he let his life become so? Christopher had to remind himself it wasn't Greta's fault he was back living in Berkeley. He also had to remind himself that this was not the rest of his life. This was just a moment, a phrase of a dance, an exceedingly tedious one to be sure, but still just a phrase. The neighbor's scrappy cat scrambled over the fence into Greta and Christopher's yard, undoubtedly searching for the perfect place to shit in their flower garden. He hated that cat. He wished he had his BB gun from junior high. He'd been a good shot. God, how he loved being a teenager, even before he discovered the softness of girls. All those empty hours, setting off firecrackers, crashing dirt pipes, jump, jumping out of trees onto neighbors' roofs with Jason. Boys really did those things. He really did those things. And these were the things, both the adult and not-so-adult versions, that were missing from his life now. Isn't that dangerous? Seemed to be the question always on Greta's lips. Whether Christopher was proposing reshingling their roof himself or riding, riding a skateboard to the BART station to go to work. Not if you know what you're doing had always been his reply. And he did indeed know what he was doing, or at least he used to. He had a fantasy that if Greta had been with him that night on the Manhattan Bridge, if she could have seen his effortless ease, she would understand that he would always be okay. It was on mornings like this one when Christopher missed Jason most. Jason, the boy had been his best friend since first grade. The kid he'd raced down black diamond runs at Tahoe in high school. The young man with whom he went backpacking down the length of South American college. The guy who was still living the woolly life in New York. They inspired each other by equal parts courage and competition. And this morning, Christopher could use a dose of the former. He glanced at the clock, 8.45. It was almost noon back east. Christopher dialed Jason's number. Jason picked up on the third ring. Dude, he sounded groggy. Sometimes Christopher forgot that New York existed in a different, far later time zone than the rest of the country. Did I wake you? <laughs> I wish. I'm still trying to get home, actually. Last night was crazy, which has spilled into an even crazier morning. Christopher knew immediately the phone call had been a mistake. He knew he should hang up. But before he could make an excuse to go, Jason jumped in. Somehow, after a seemingly simple dinner at this little Croatian place in Queens, a bunch of us ended up taking the waitress and her friends to this cool underground Colombian club that my sister's boyfriend, who's from Cartagena, told us about. I have never had so much fun dancing. I wish I could have been there, Christopher said, with as much nonchalance as he could muster. <laughs> Me too, man, because uh, let's just say the owners of this club were very permissive when it came to public consumption of illegal substances and displays of nudity, you'd have loved it. And that was the magic of New York. The magic of how he and Jason had lived there, how Jason was still living there. For a moment, Christopher, whose night had consisted of tending to Greta and her interminable morning, noon, and night sickness, couldn't remember why he ever chose to leave. Fuck, I, I hear Greta calling from upstairs. He didn't. Let me call you later. The mother in waiting calls. Jason trailed off. Peace. He had to hurry, lest Greta wake before he could escape the house. His surf gear was stuffed into a box that had already, thankfully, been moved into the garage. So he crept out to the backyard and jogged across the dewy lawn to where his board and gear were stored. It took two trips to load the Volvo. Much as he wanted to leave it behind, he also remembered to grab his cell phone. Finally, he left Greta a note. Hey, honey, so hope you slept well. Gone for a quick blast of nature. See you soon. X, C. He hoped the cozy tone of the note would mask his despair. Christopher hadn't thought to check the surf report before he left. When he arrived at Pacifica, the waves were huge. Too huge? After Jason's night of Croatian restaurants and Colombian nightclubs, he simply couldn't be shut out. Not today. Straining his eyes, he could glimpse only a handful of surfers in the water. 
See there, he thought, if they can do it, so can I. He'd always known his physical limits, so what was his hesitation? He was older, he was out of shape, he was scared, came the uninvited answers. He reminded himself that he might not have this chance again for years. Fuck it, he said aloud. His wetsuit was tight against his new, thicker body, and he had trouble zipping it up all the way. I will eat fewer cheeseboard danishes, he promised himself. The water was cold despite the neoprene protection, but Christopher didn't hesitate. He slid onto the board and began to paddle. After only a couple of minutes, his arms hurt like hell. He paddled harder, the spray of salt water filling his mouth. This was what no one told you about surfing. The hardest part was sometimes getting out to the waves. Unaccustomed as he grown to the physical strain, the pain in his arms and shoulders felt good. I am battling the elements, Christopher told himself. I am a man who is alive. And finally he was out. Out of breath, yes, but also out where he needed to be. Christopher, Christopher straddled his board and exhaled. The view of the mountains, Highway 1, the beach, the easy roll of the water underneath him. Yes, this is what he'd been missing. This was all he needed to make everything right. Let Jason have his concrete fun. Christopher would claim this as his. When the first set of catchable waves finally arrived, his first few rides were short and unsteady. But Christopher was undeterred. He was patient with himself, and his timing improved with each attempt at standing. The fog had slipped out to sea, releasing the bay from its gray grips. Christopher closed his eyes to the white sun. One good ride, and he could head home sated. One good ride, and he could face another stultifying week of legal briefs in an airless office. One good ride, and he could endure Greta's incessant demands and his own envy of Jason's life. As a promising swell arose on the horizon, Christopher opened his eyes and slid on his stomach in anticipation. The rising wave was beautiful, and it was breaking just right for him and him alone. He paddled hard, then seamlessly stood. He knew immediately he'd caught the wave well. This was being 12 years old again and driving the ball into the left center gap to win the Little League semifinal. This was 16 and losing his virginity to Ashley in her parents' basement after school. This was 18 and moving as he never had in the modern dance class he'd signed up for on a whim. This was the swan dive off the Manhattan Bridge. This was Grace. Thank you so much, Benj. Because it'll be one of the easier ones for, for the big crowd to see, I thought that I would show uh, Ben Teagle's illustration, which is really one of the more striking ones in the book, um, of the swan dive. So here's the swan dive off the Manhattan Bridge. Okay. All right, our next reader tonight is Rhoda Huffy. Rhoda is the author of the novel The Hallelujah Side, which was chosen as a Barnes & Noble Discover Great New Writers book. Her short fiction has appeared in Plowshares, Tin House, Santa Monica Review, and Green Mountains Review. She lives in Venice Beach. Please welcome Rhoda Huffy. Thank you, Skylight Books, and thank you, Michelle. Um, you have done a wonderful job with this magazine. It's great. Uh, I'm going to read from a story in the magazine. It's called Mrs. House. It's about a woman named Francine whose lover Cyrus has been sick and has died about six months before and she's desperate for a sense of home. 
Cyrus had first seen the White House and then showed her, and they stopped, amazed at the expanse of what looked like a pasture with fruit trees, a farmhouse in suburbia, a half acre of grass out of a time warp. Even the light was sharper. When Cyrus could no longer walk, she went herself to stare at the house. Six months after Cyrus died, when she saw the for sale sign, she knew the house was hers. It was beyond her means. She walked back the next day, and this time a man with white hair stood in the driveway, both hands on his hips, staring at a rain spout. At the side of the house, Francine imagined living there. Hello, called Francine. Who is it, said the man, turning slowly, not like a young person. I want to buy this house, said Francine. Do you? I don't have any money, she added. Ma, he yelled. The front screen door opened and his wife peered out. Some kid is here with no money and she wants to buy the house. She hadn't been called a kid in years and it felt oddly nurturing, as if these people and the house itself were her parents. Mrs. House stepped out. I put on this roof myself, she said, pointing up. A ladder and a brush for tar and roofing paper. That's all you need. Francine stood still. We need money, though, the man said. No fancy carrybacks, due and payable. No 6% to any real estate lady. The house was hers already, although none of the three of them acknowledged it. Maybe I could get some. Money, I mean. It was just money, and there was lots of it in the world. Bankers had lots. We don't want any strings, the man said. We're clearing out. Francine looked up. And anyway, some man bought it. Yesterday, he gave us a check, $12,000 good faith money. He can't back out or he loses it. Francine stood. Nice to meet you, said the woman. Come and visit again. That check is going to bounce, said Francine. She went back almost every day for several weeks, sometimes knocking on the door. It was as though Cyrus was back from the dead, and together they would live there. Without fail, each time she knocked, the man answered the door. Ma, the kid is here. Well, let her in. The house was a receptacle for doilies, doilies everywhere. They sat several afternoons a week and chatted looking out the window at the fruit trees. Mrs. House had planted everything on this half acre. Bulbs, peaches, flowers, hedges, a magnificent bush with 30 yellow roses. Nasturtiums ran down the driveway. Mrs. House explained that when they had bought this land, it was bare. Mustard fields as far as you could see, she gestured. Would you like some tea? Please, said Francine. This house was an army barracks out of Santa Ana. The war was over and they were selling buildings cheap. We hauled it in and put it down. I sank that little bathtub in the ground for daffodils. I forget what bulbs are in the ground myself. Well, I don't care who gets this place or what they do to it, said Doris, which was Mrs. House's name. They can smash it to smithereens for all I care. Three months later, Francine ran into Jack in Stater Brothers' grocery store in produce. They chatted, leaning over their carts at the apple bin, Francine holding an apple in each hand, one red and one green, unable to decide. She never knew what she wanted in the world, but she wanted this. Carefully, she put both apples down. The man in his cart started leaving. That $12,000 check bounce, Jack offered, offhand. Francine called her father that night, but he wasn't interested. He was interested, but he was busy. 
He was building an apartment building, luxury units, and her parents were flying to Switzerland for the World Pentecostal Convention. A real experience with God was sweeping the world. Her father said that he would get down when he could to look at things, but when he could, stretched into five weeks. She called politely, often, on the telephone and made small talk until the night she screamed. You never do anything for me. Her mother spoke up where she had been listening on the other telephone. Daddy sliced his finger off upon the scaffolding of the apartment. It was hanging by a thread and your daddy had to climb down, holding it against his chest and using one arm. He was alone and he drove himself to the hospital. It's a miracle they saved it and he didn't break his neck. He doesn't want to complain. I don't care, Francine screamed into the telephone. He has to do something. Her voice was cracking, quite hysterical. He has to come and see. He came to take a look on Saturday, one hand bandaged up, and Francine, listening for the door, paced the floor in despair. She had to have this house, and that was all she could see. How she knew this house would care for her, she had no idea. The doorbell rang. God wants us to buy this house, her father said, excitement filling his face, both hands raised, one hand bandaged. Praise God. I beg your pardon? The wind was out of her. She stepped back and he entered the hallway. Her father had not once been in this apartment where she lived with Cyrus. After Cyrus died, her father warmed to him. Her parents telephoned <laughs> her parents telephoned to say they were coming to the funeral and she said she would have them arrested. Around the corner in the breakfast nook, her father pulled out each chair and put each chair back. They're expecting us at two o'clock, she said, confused. It's two fifteen. Her father sat. I was halfway here, he said, drunk, although he didn't drink, and light, as if he were about to slightly rise. She checked his two feet. I was driving, but driving is a good time for prayer. I happened to look down, and do you know what the speedometer said? No. He looked dazed. Seven, 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 seven. Goodness, she said, like a Christian. Do you have any idea what those odds are that I would look down at that exact moment? His birthday was the seventh day of the seventh month, and God had given him the gift of wisdom in real estate. Francine, heart beating fast, sat still, her father carried by a tidal wave of purpose. Let's go down and see what God has, he said. Thank you. I have a pronunciation question. Give me one second. I'm back. Okay, before we move on and I introduce Amelia Morris, some of you know this drill. I take pictures of all of our rattling wall audiences having the best time of their lives and I post them online as proof to other literary magazines that we've really got it going on. Hold on a second. I had the camera up and then I didn't. Okay, are you guys ready? I get really psyched right now for this picture. <laughs> this is my brag book until I have children. Are you ready? <laughs> ready? One, two, three. Hand motions, you yeah. guys. You can't just be. Ready? One, two, three. Yes. Oh, yes. Those of you who I'm friends with, I will tag you in this photo. So get excited. 
Okay, Amelia Morris is our next, we have two more readers tonight. Amelia Morris is our next reader. She lives in Los Angeles and authors the food blog, Bon Appetit. Her handy work has appeared on Savor, 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 Savor. See, I could have just done this with you all, and it would have been fun. Uh, Bonappetit.com, WestElm.com, Gourmet Live, Refinery29, and the Los Angeles Times. Bon Appetit has won two of Savers, Savur magazines. I hope that no one from this magazine is here tonight. Uh, best food blog. Uh, the Best Food Blog Awards, Best Culinary Essay in 2011, and Best Food Humor Blog in 2012. Additionally, her writing has been published in McSweeney's Joke Book of Book Jokes, and her first novel, Will and Margot, patiently awaits publication. Please welcome Amelia Morris. Thank you, Michelle. Um, I promised a lot of people a red face tonight, so hopefully that can happen for you. Um, I'm going to read sections from the essay that's in the magazine. It's called Internet Haunting. Um, I pour coffee into my pale green ceramic mug. I add half and half and enough sugar to remind myself that this is part of my special morning ritual. I carry it with me to the living room where I set the steaming cup down on the corner of the apropos coffee table and then take a seat on the nearby couch. The morning is when my brain is the clearest, the most open, the most ready to work for me. So this is the time I devote to writing. I typically don't check my email during the time it takes to drink my coffee. I don't like to sully the ritual. But today I'm a little anxious. I'm awaiting a very important email. So I let myself check it, just once, to relieve the tension. There's nothing awaiting me at my main email account, but I actually have three email accounts. So after I check the one, in order to close the loop, I must check the other two. I imagine it's the kind of pull a mother feels toward her baby triplets. You can't kiss the forehead of one without kissing the forehead of the other two. It would be wrong. In my third email account, there's a message from Facebook. Someone has commented on something I have already commented on. I click the link to see what it was. My coffee is sitting there waiting for me, so I know I don't have time to engage right now. I'm in the middle of writing an essay, after all. Oh, right. I remember this. It's this beautiful photo of my best friend. Her hair is down, and she's looking off to the side and toward the ground. It's not your average Facebook photo. She looks contemplative, peaceful. You can hardly see it, but it looks like the shirt she's wearing is the one she purchased when she was in Los Angeles visiting me. It was just a few months ago, but I already wished we had another reunion planned. I'd forgotten what it was like to spend time with a really good friend. I recently picked up this book, Anamkara, which means soul friend in Old Gaelic. The author, poet and philosopher John O'Donohue, explains that in this kind of relationship, a soul friendship, quote, you are understood as you are without mask or pretension. <clears throat> the superficial and functional lies and half-truths of social acquaintance fall away. You can be as you really are. For that weekend, end quote, for that weekend, I remembered what it was like to be as I really am with someone who isn't my husband. You see, sometimes you don't even realize you're putting on an act until you spend time with someone with whom you don't need to act. 
feel the face getting red. <laughs> Below the photo of my friend, there's one of those Instagram photos of a baking sheet of slow roasted tomatoes. They look perfect, red, deflated, and shiny. I've always wanted to do that. I've read it's one of the best things you can do to a tomato because everything you love about them, their simultaneous sweet and savory aspects, their juice and mellow acidity, all of this deepens and expands when you roast them. I imagine they alone would make a lovely pasta sauce, or I might place a few on a slice of toasted baguette with a heaping spoonful of burrata cheese and a sprinkling of salt and pepper. That's what you call a restaurant quality appetizer right there. I check my emails one last time before closing out of my browser. Nothing. I take a sip of my sweet and creamy coffee. It's instantly restorative. I remember my purpose. Um, but I don't remember my purpose for long. I go back on the internet. And then we come back to another section. See, Virginia Woolf knows what I'm talking about. In the essay Street Haunting, she has spent the better part of her day on her own in her room. And in the late afternoon, she decides she needs a new pencil. Does she really need a new pencil? No. What she needs is to get out of her head for a minute. What she needs is a moment's distraction. Quote, as we step out of the house on a fine evening between four and six, we shed the self our friends know us by and become part of that vast Republican army of anonymous trampers, whose society is so agreeable after the solitude of one's own room." End quote. There are moments when we are alone, with nothing but ourselves and the task at hand, which is to organize our scattered thoughts into some sort of chronological narrative, which of course no one is begging for, and which certainly the world could do without, but for some inexplicable reason we ourselves cannot do without. When checking one's email becomes a kind of deep yearning in the heart, a kind of scratch-off lotto ticket with the ability to take your mind off trying to get it all down and trying to get it all right. Then I go back to the internet, and then <laughs> we jump to another section. One second. <clears throat> Ms. Wolf is attracted to many beautiful things as she walks down a winter London street. There are office buildings and houses where certain windows have become these square pockets of light in which she can see a clerk poring over a document and a woman preparing a cup of tea. We've been there before, haven't we? I've walked my parents' dogs down icy, snow-laced sidewalks and felt the sacredness of a winter's night. Maybe it's the automatic dreaminess of snow or the shock of the cold air on your face, but as you walk, your neighbor's half-illuminated house suddenly feels mysterious. Perhaps you see someone walk by the hall window and for a moment you recognize the beauty of it, of seeing a flash of someone else's life in the middle of what is otherwise darkness. But we typically don't go further than that, than the wonder. Because, quote, the eye is not a miner, not a diver, not a seeker after buried treasure. It floats us smoothly down a stream, resting, pausing, the brain sleeps perhaps as it looks, end quote. After two hours of haunting the London streets, Ms. Wolfe finally accomplishes her original task, the purchase of a pencil. She returns home and finds her room exactly as she left it. It's a comfort to her. Despite her wayward wandering and people watching, she has come home and found that the only thing that has changed is the acquisition of a new pencil. 
Let us examine it tenderly, she says. Let us touch it with reverence. It's six o'clock in the evening here in Los Angeles, and I'm sitting on the same corner of the couch where I began this normal morning. The three windows of the living room look out onto my apartment building's courtyard. The sun has just set, and I can hear my neighbors coming home. They're opening and closing their mailboxes. They're rescuing their dogs from their yardless one or two bedrooms and taking them out to the street for a walk. I haven't gotten up since the sun went down, so all of the lights in my apartment are still off. I realize that I'm sitting close enough to the windows that if any one of my neighbors took a second to look up, they would see the glow from my computer screen and the outline of my profile. If they look closer, which would constitute snooping on their part, they might see me checking my email again. Still nothing. Thank you. Thank you so much, Amelia. I wanted to mention this after Amelia's reading. If any of you, how many of you have visited Bon Appetit before? I feel so lucky that this is going to be the introduction for you then. Bon Appetit is Amelia's website and it is a freaking sensory delight. Okay, everyone needs to go check it out. Beautiful photos, beautiful food. And I have to say, now that she's done, so I don't make her nervous, that I had been a longtime fan of the blog and I wrote to Amelia and, and very carefully like adjusted my email and copy edited to make sure that she knew that I was serious and, and asked her to write you know a piece for the rattling wall and she agreed and I was a little bit starstruck okay which was great for me I like to mention these things publicly as they happen there's more red face going on over here by the way and uh, I will say though whatever starstruckedness was happening when Amelia said that she would write this essay, which ended up being a wonderful essay for the book, and is matched. There's another essay in the book by uh, David Ulin, who's the LA Times book critic. He's also exploring Virginia Woolf's essay, Street Haunting. So there's an interesting parallel that happens here. Uh, but the first time that the rattling wall was mentioned on Bon Appetit, if the rattling wall was a person, the rattling wall would have felt famous that day. Okay, everyone needs to go check out Bon Appetit. Okay, our la how are we all doing? Can we clap one more time? The front row is particularly excited. Our last reader tonight is Mandy Kahn. She is the co-author of the book Collage Culture. Her recent appearances include readings, signings, and talks at Art Center College of Design, Beyond Baroque Literary Arts Center, The Last Bookstore, Family, The Jubilee, Printed Matter, and many more. Kahn is writer-in-residence for the live event, The Series, for which she writes poetry, prose, and experimental theater in collaboration with choreographers, musicians, and performance artists. This one is a tongue twister. Both her poetry and her prose have been anthologized. Please welcome Mandy Kahn. Where are you, Mandy? Okay. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for having me to Michelle and to Skylight and to Penn. Um, so I'm going to be reading some poems tonight. This first poem uh, appears in issue three of The Rattling Wall. It's called The Tour Guide. I followed the German tour guide through the hulking old basilica. He told the group, or so I guessed, indicating high and low. This is where the wind begins. 
This is where the childhoods of a thousand martyrs live untouched. Wood grain in these pews still curls to likenesses of patron saints. Window holes are cut the breadth of human souls when loosed. Dark paint in the frescoes is crushed ants. White paint is light. Leaves and fauna long extinct are rendered in the porticos. See that goat with antlers? Gone from life, but captured here. Hold your breath and it bows its head. Reach toward the ceiling and sigh, and it sighs. Worth two times the value of the Bulgar Sea is that old bell. When younger priests would ring it, the nuns were warned to shield their hearts. He's, oh, that's not the end. That's not the end. That's okay, but it's close to the end. Um, he said, he said far more I can't recall, and when I tried to pay him, he spurned my coins, saying in German, what good is money, my child, to the wind? That's the end. From now on, I will cleverly sing signal you at the end. <laughs> Watch for the clever signal. It might be a nod of some sort. It'll look like I'm disappearing. Um, this is a, this is a, if you've ever heard a ghost story, this is a ghost poem. Poem for our ghost. Oh, and it's a true story. Poem for our ghost. Who can blame the figure who appeared, translucent, glowing, green, and watched us sleep just after we'd made love? Moving as he does all night past rooftops and the tufts of trees, how could he resist from perching closer to such ardent rest? Not more now than lengths of ivy painted on a scrim. How could he resist such florid substance, such clay on clay? Two ropes swelled with ocean water, bound to the bed, bound to each other, far as one can get from his own estate of disembodied transit. Was our fragrance strong enough to call him down from his canopy seat in the nighttime? How long did he watch us, letting our scented breath pass heavily through him? How long did he float, graceful, ponderous, sad, before I caught him looking where his presence lit the room. Even I feel sometimes like a ghost hovered above us, trying to get closer, to become us, to know for certain our flesh. <laughs> that was sort of like a ballet move. I'm gonna do a slightly different ballet move at the end of each one. Um, this is called Why I Wake Up Slowly. I'm put to sleep, as you are, by the regular noise of fluttering angels. With hands the size of nickels, all night they smooth my hair. When I sleep my deepest, they line the sheets around me like iridescent dinner plates. Our breaths in concert rise. Later, just before I wake, they watch like tiny mothers hovered in groups, an air show heard from many miles away. I know the sound and try to stay asleep. 
to keep them. <laughs> I did not take ballet. <laughs> um, this poem is called Edges. The doctor sends a tincture that will mix with the water inside me and bubble into thin, industrious steam. Some organ will endure its clogged vents cleaned. Agents will move through me with agendas, adept and light. I'll see then what I failed to see, not colors, but their edges, not seasons, but the many points in snow. I'll understand your leaving and what I said and what I failed to say. From the seat of this better machinery, I'll lose you again, but sharper. The face of every building will display its tiles and boards. I'd rather let a skin form on the pudding by the mixer, let dust build on the cactus pot, let spiders drop, let curtains fringe. I'd rather leave the crayons on the back seat of the hot car, spreading into one imperfect being with all their very wax. I always thought I should have taken a dance class because it would have come in handy one day. I just didn't know when that day was going to be. Um, this is my last poem, so I guess the last piece of the night. Thank you again so much to Michelle um, for including me and to the bookstore and to Penn. Um, this also appears in the Rattling Wall issue three. It's called Poem That Contains All Time. A sheep encountered a fisherman in rags near the edge of the world. Why, inquired the sheep, even now do you cast your line? The day is all but over, and the fish have learned to outsmart you. The fisherman spoke with a crack in his affable voice. Soft thing, he said. You're a place to rest one's ear after months of crunching leaves with muddy boots. You're the thing that turns a vicious day to dream, that launches us to buckshot, that ties night to our eyes. You're the door in the wall. You're the pack, a bag of cotton balls, an acre of clasped hands. But also you're a single thread which, pried from its grid, with little force, unwinds the sheet we've knitted to a pile. Your grouped brain is the one that asks this question. The other brain, the stalk of wheat just dug up from the cooling field, already knows. Even when the stream is free of beasts, when yellowed grass appears in clumps so thick the water can't loop through and fretting dries, the fisherman carries his tackle box to the dust bowl where the river ends, casts his line, unwraps his lunch, and sits. An eon is a lot of time to wait for a change in weather, but forever is a longer time, and a single day with an unstrung pole to a man as old as I am is a broken watch, a swath of cactus needles, all time. Thank you. All right, one last round of applause for all of our readers in Skylight.
beers left, so you should drink all of the beer that's left. We're selling all three copies of The Rattling Wall. You should, you should buy copies for every person that you know. Um, if you're interested in seeing your work appear in The Rattling Wall, you can visit the journal online at therattlingwall.com. Right now, we're accepting uh, submissions until May 1st, short fiction, travel essays, and poetry. We're also on Facebook. I'm very charming on Facebook. And Twitter, so you can like us and follow us accordingly there. And if you have interest in Penn and learning more about this membership organization, you can go on to Penn's website, which is www.penusa.org. And whether you are a writer yourself or whether you're a literary community supporter, there are levels of membership that suit both of those things. And if you've never met me before, and there are lots of you tonight who I don't know, please come and say hello to me. I'd love to meet you. Thank you again for joining us. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.